Romans chapter 3, please. start reading verse 11 of Romans chapter 3. There is none righteous, uh, sorry, there is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no not one. Their throat is an open sepulchre. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Gracious Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of being together. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for the great sacrifice of Christ upon Calvary. We thank you for the forgiveness of sin. Thank you for the cleansing that is ours through Jesus Christ. We pray that, Father, you'd bless this night now as we come to your word, that, Lord, we would be led of you, that you would open up the pages of your word before us and help us understand its truth. Help us to apply that which you would have us to apply. Lord, help us to learn from you this night. Guide our time as we study your word. And Lord, may you receive all the praise and the glory. Lord, give me wisdom, I pray. To say that which you would have me to say. To say it with clarity. To say it, Father God, in a way that uh, we can understand your truth. And be blessed by it, Father God. I just pray that tonight you've got our time. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight we come to the climax of uh, in God's courtroom. And in fact, at the climax of the section of Romans, well, from Romans chapter 3 and verse 21 onwards, Paul changes the theme of Romans from sin to redemption or sin to righteousness. In Romans 3, verses 15 to 20, Paul makes his final remarks, if you like, in the court case, his closing statement to the court on the simple condition of man. In summing up, he paints a very unflattering picture of the character of mankind. The confirmation of what Paul says, all we have to do is look at the pages of any newspaper, we read the accounts of destruction and bloodshed and misery, which is what Paul talks about here in Romans chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. In Romans chapter 3, verses 18, 11 to 18, indicates that the whole of man's being is controlled by sin. And Paul here makes, uh, rather looks at the human condition from the top to the bottom. He begins with the head and he moves all, his way, all the way down to the feet of man to describe that the character of man, declaring that sin affects every aspect of man's being. 
And tonight we're going to have a look at these characteristics of man and see how sin affects each part of our being. First of all, sin affects man's understanding in verse 11. There is none that understandeth. There is none that understandeth. There are no exceptions to this statement. There is no one, not even one, that understands. Psalm 14 and verse 2 says, The Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that did understand and seek God. And upon this survey of mankind, as God looked out to see if there was anybody that understands amongst mankind, there was no one. He found no one that understands. Not one human being exists that understands. You know, man thinks himself very wise. If you talk to many people today, mankind thinks they're wise. They think they have understanding. They believe they're an understanding creature, but God's word says that of mankind that no one understands spiritual things. That mankind in general, without Jesus Christ, has no spiritual understanding. Mankind has no true sense of their sin, has no true sense of their misery, no true sense of their plights. Nor does mankind truly know the way of salvation through Jesus Christ. Man simply is without understanding. We only have to do is look at, uh, look and read the works of the philosophers to see this statement is true. You know, you read through, through history, you read about Aristotle and Plato and others, and they try to philosophize and try to give some wisdom and insight into uh, why we exist, you know, where we come from, where we're going, and what is the purpose for us being here between when we arrive and when we leave. And the philosophers don't even have the answer. No one who is unsaved can understand the truth. In fact, somebody said of philosophy, he said philosophy consists of unintelligible answers to unsolvable questions. And that's the problem with mankind. Mankind does not understand. Mankind does not understand their plight before God and understand the solution to their condition. They don't understand the questions of life. They don't understand the uh, uh, truth at all. And without God... All of the questions that mankind has are unanswerable. For God is the answer. Sin affects man's understanding, but sin also affects man's heart. Continue on in verse 11. There is none that understands, there is none that seeketh after God. You know, some may seek for the things of God. People want the blessings of God. There are many religious people who want God to bless them. There's been many a person in a war, in a foxhole, whose life is threatened, that uh, have cried out to God, and what they want is God's blessing. They want God's care. They want God to uh, keep his promises. But that's not seeking God. That's wanting God's favor. That's wanting God's blessings. That's wanting God to give you something, but it's not seeking after God. You know, everybody in reality, wants an easy life. If you were to ask people what it really they want, they want an easy life. People don't want to have difficulty. People don't want to have conflict. People don't want to have sickness. People don't want to go through difficult times. 
people want easy lives. And if God can help us have that easy life, then most people would say fine. But they don't want God. They want the benefits without knowing the person. They want the blessings without the relationship. They certainly don't want God in their life telling them what to do. They just want God to be a, a benefactor to them. You know, this, this wonderful, gracious benefactor who gives to them all these blessings with no expectation of anything in return. And the reason is because nobody seeks after God. Now, the apostates, uh, the apostate preachers around the world talk about man's search for God. But the reality is that man is, in fact, spiritually dead, spiritually corrupt. A man does not seek for God. The truth of God's word is this, that God seeks for us. We don't seek for him. Go with me to Luke 19, please. Luke 19. And verse 9. Jesus said unto him, This day is salvation come to this house, for so much as he also is of the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus Christ came to seek us, came to save us, to seek and to save that which is lost. And this truth that no man seeketh after God, but God seeks after us, makes our salvation all the more precious. You and I were sinners, hell-bound sinners, and you and I wanted nothing to do with God. We were destined for a Christless eternity. And unless God came looking for us, we would never look for him. No man seeks after God. But God did look for us. He sent his son to die for us so that you and I might be saved. And our salvation is precious, not because we look for God, but because God looked for us. Came to seek and to save that which is lost. You know, if it wasn't for God's love for us, if it wasn't for God seeking us, if it wasn't for God caring about our eternal destiny, if it wasn't for the fact that God had an interest in his creation, that he loved you and I so much, you and I would not be saved. Because the truth is, you and I would not seek for him. If God had not made himself known to us, you and I would not know him. We ought to be thankful that when you and I look at the heavens and we see the stars, that's God's handiwork. He is revealing himself to you and I. When you and I look at the grass and we see that every blade of grass is different, we need to see that that's God's handiwork. God is portraying himself to you and I. When we hear the birds sing and when we... Have you ever thought about why God bothered to give different birds different songs to sing? I mean, could you imagine what it would be like if they all sounded like a crow? I mean, why did God make them all different? Why didn't he just make them all, you know, like a pigeon? Why did God do that? 
It's because God wanted to reveal to you and I his character. In general revelation, God has revealed to mankind that he exists. And if he had not done that, you and I wouldn't know that he exists. But you and I would be thankful also that he gave us his word. Special revelation. He revealed himself to us in the word of God so that we can know the God of heaven, that we can know his character, we can know his person. And then he sent his own son to walk amongst us, to die upon the cross of Calvary, that we might know him who to know is life eternal. We don't seek after God, but God came seeking for us. And for that, we ought to be thankful. We have a wonderful God. Thirdly, we see that man's sin affects man's will in verse 12. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. There's none that doeth good. Man's will is corrupt. All of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. You know, measured by God's perfect righteousness, measured by the standard of God's righteousness, no human being is sinless. And therefore, no one is good. Remember the young man who came to the Lord and said, Good master, and he said, Why callest thou me good? For no one is good but God. The young man didn't realize he was actually declaring who Christ was, that he was God when he called him good master. But the reality is that none of us, according to the standard of God's righteousness, are good. There's none that doeth good. No one is able to live up to the right standard of God's righteousness. Nobody is holy. No one is good. The reality is that unsaved man is self-willed. He seeks self-fulfillment. He seeks self-satisfaction. He seeks self-advancement. He doesn't seek after God. To emphasize this, in Romans 3.12, the apostle says this, they're, they're all gone out of the way. They're all gone out of the way. This phrase means they're all gone aside or gone back. They've gone away from the track. Gone back from God, gone back from his commands They're walking contrary to the way of God and the will of God. That is that mankind without Christ is out of the way of God. He's out of his precepts. He's out of the way of holiness and righteousness. He's out of the path of light and life into their own ways, into the ways of sin. They're walking the path that Satan has set for them. The ways of the world, the ways of death. The road that leads to destruction. Instead of being on the narrow road that leads to eternal life, they're on the broad way that leads to destruction. And man's ways, therefore, are unprofitable. Look in Proverbs 16.25, please. Proverbs 16 and verse 25. There is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. His ways are unprofitable. 
They're all going to head of the way. They are together become unprofitable. The word unprofitable there in verse 12 has the idea of milk that has turned sour. It speaks of something that was permanently bad and therefore useless. Hence there is none that doeth good, no, not one. Mankind without Christ cannot do good. Mankind cannot do God's will because they are lost. And without the grace of God, without the strength of Jesus Christ, without the assistance of the Holy Spirit, there is not even a spiritual man that can do good perfectly (coughs) without sin, let alone the unsaved. There is none that doeth good. Praise God. He loved us when you and I were sinners. And he saved us by his son. Not because there was any merit in us. Not because there was any good in us. Not because God saw something in us worth saving. He saved us even though you and I didn't deserve to be saved. He commended his love towards us and that while we yet sinners, Christ died for us. Man's sin fourthly affects his mouth. Look in verse 13 and 14. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Man's mouth is full of bitterness. You know, here, the apostle, as he's describing the, this, this body, body of man and describing the body parts to illustrate the condition of man, he says he lists his throat, his tongue, his lips, and his mouth. And he gives a vivid description of the awful condition Oh man, the awful thing that the mouth can be. I mean, look at it again. He says, The throat is an open sepulchre, their tongues they have used deceit, the poison of apps under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their throat is an open sepulchre. Literally, it's a tomb that's been opened and it stinks. The rotting corpse is there for all to smell. That's man's throat. Their tongue has been false, treacherous, and unfaithful. They've been using deceit. Their lips are poisonous. It says the, 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 uh, there about the lips, it says the poison of apps, apps is under their lips. You know, an ass there is a small creature but its poison stupefies its victim and kills. And so does an evil tongue. It is deadly in an incurable manner. You go to James, and we won't go there because we don't have time. You go to James, we get a description of the tongue. It's like a fire that consumes the tongue that's on a we can bridle uh, a horse with a bit, but we uh, uh, but we can't bridle the tongue. It is it is a uh, full of 
venom, it's full of poison, it's a terrible thing. It's not very nice. This description of man. But if we take time to stop and think of the evil the tongue has caused, or the tongue continues to cause in the world today and even amongst believers, we know that Paul is not overstating the facts about the tongue. The tongue is a very dangerous weapon. The tongue can destroy, the tongue can, can hurt, the, the tongue can do more damage than many things can do. And the reason why the sinner's tongue and the sinner's throat and the sinner's lips are so bad is because man is spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2, please. Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. You have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, where in time past walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now work in the children of disobedience, among whom so you had your conversation in times past, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You know, because man is dead spiritually, only death can come out of his mouth. It's full of bitterness. And cursing. And mankind without Christ really has nothing to say that can be uplifting and edifying in the way that God wants to be. By contrast, as believers, we are to have our speech seasoned with salt. Our, our speech is supposed to bring glory to God because we're regenerated out of our hearts or to flow the kind of speech that brings glory to God. You know, from the heart of the sinner flows speech that reflects his heart. When the sinner curses, it's because it comes from his heart. When the sinner says what they say, which is uh, uh, contrary to God, it's because of what's in their heart. When they speak the words that are venomous, it's because of what's in their heart. And as believers, because you and I are regenerated, our hearts ought to be reflected in our speech. Our speech ought to always be seasoned with salt and grace and peace. Because of the work that God's done in our heart. Fifthly, sin affects man's feet. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Swift to shed blood. Just as the sinner's words are deceitful, so too are his ways. In fact, here we're told that his ways are destructive. Destruction and misery are in their ways. Right here we see a marked difference and a contrast between the believer and the unbeliever, between the feet of the righteous and the feet of the unrighteous. You know, the feet of the sinner lead to destruction, but the feet of the righteous are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Look at Romans chapter 10 and verse 15. Verse 14 says, How shall they call on him who have not believed? And how shall they believe on him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As written, How beautiful are the feet of them that have preached the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. 
You know, it says here that our uh, feet, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace. We should be sharing the gospel of peace with the world. Believers' ways are to be ways of peace, not destruction. You and I are to bring glad tidings of good things to mankind. We are to bring peace and righteousness to mankind. We are to be ambassadors of peace. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And verse 18. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world himself and not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now we are ambassadors for Christ as though we did beseech you in Christ, so though God did beseech you by us we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. You and I have a ministry of reconciliation. You and I have to preach the gospel of peace so that people might be indeed reconciled unto God. We have to preach that we have, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We've been given the word of reconciliation. And you and I have been made ambassadors for God to go forth with the ministry and word of reconciliation. It's our responsibility to share the gospel of peace. Well, on the other hand, according to Romans chapter 3, the lost sinner shows a marked contrast in his ways to that of a believer. Because it says here that his ways bring forth death and destruction. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their ways. Now, these tragedies may occur, not occur immediately but they will come inevitably. Now, it is true that when you look at the unsaved, some unsaved people never fulfill these things. Some do. Some people are pretty awful. They are. You look at them and, and there's a trail of destruction around about them. They're, they are uh, people who, uh, you know, you could say they, they, they shed blood and destruction and misery follow them. But it's true that the vast majority of mankind is not like that. They don't shed blood. They don't destroy. They don't bring misery. The majority of mankind in all their lifetime will never end up this way. But the point of the verse is this, that ultimately, even the most righteous of the sinner's ways will ultimately lead to destruction and misery. Why? Because they're on the broad road. Go with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And verse 13. Matthew 7, 13. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in there thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. You see, wide is the gate and broad is the, the way that leadeth to destruction. Ultimately, every unsaved person's path is leading to destruction. Their feet, indeed, are swift. 
and their way is one of destruction and misery. Ultimately, that's where they'll end up. Those who follow them will find their feet lead them to destruction. And as we look around us today and we, we see the continuing series of wars and murders and all the grief in the world, it just proves the point that the feet are swift to shed blood, destruction, misery in their ways, that the natural course of mankind is one that is a contrary to God, opposed to God, and the end is going to be destruction. That's what's true in Paul's day, and it's true in our day. And what the sinner needs today, just as he needed in Paul's day, is the Savior. He needs to recognize Christ as his Savior. He needs to see himself as a sinner before a holy God and recognize Christ as Savior. And by believing the Lord Jesus Christ, getting off the broad way that leads to destruction and getting to the narrow way that leads to eternal life. And for those of us who are saved, you and I have to be thankful that we are not on the road to destruction, but that you and I are on the road to eternal life. And because we're on that road, you and I ought to go forth the gospel of peace and we ought to share it with everyone that we meet. So they might get off the Broadway onto the narrow. Believers, we should desire to share the gospel of peace with the lost. Sixthly, sin affects man's mind. Look in verse 17. And the way of peace they have not known. He says here of mankind, mankind does not know the way of peace. He doesn't know the way of God's peace. They don't understand about peace. Real peace, genuine peace. Peace that's brought about by salvation. They don't understand God's peace. The world wants peace. They cry for peace. Christmas time, they sing about peace. But they don't know genuine peace that comes through salvation. <coughs> this is what caused Jesus Christ to weep over Jerusalem. Look in Luke chapter 19, please. Luke chapter 19 and verse 41. when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Saying, if thou had known, even thou, at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemy shall cast a trench about thee, encompass thee round, and keep thee in, and in on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou, hast not, thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Christ wept over them because they did not know the peace, the things which belong under thy peace, because they rejected Christ. They missed the time of his visitation. They missed their Messiah. They missed the coming of Christ. And he wept over them because they missed on the opportunity of knowing genuine peace because the Prince of Peace had come. Isn't that what the angel said? I bring you glad tidings of great joy 
peace on earth, goodwill towards all men. The Prince of Peace had come. But they missed that opportunity of peace because they rejected the Prince of Peace. They missed the day of visitation and Christ wept over Jerusalem because they missed the opportunity to partake in that peace. And mankind today has miss, is missing that peace. Not only does man know, uh, not know the way of peace, but the unfortunate thing is mankind generally doesn't even want to know the way of peace. Look at Romans chapter 1 and verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but because but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to reprimand mind to those things which are not convenient. That's the world in which we live in, isn't it? You know, mankind today worships, worships the creature more than it worships the creator. There's a religion of, of, of uh, uh, worshipping creation today. Man doesn't call it that, but that's what it is. And everywhere we turn, what we find is people are turning away from God and turning to worship the creation and forgetting the creator who made it all. The one who is the Prince of Peace would like to give mankind peace, but they reject him. They want peace, but they don't want the Prince of Peace. They want world peace. They want everything to be in harmony. They want the globe to be reconciled. They would love the world to be what it should be like it was in the Garden of Eden. And they want to have, you know, all the, the green policies of the world, but they reject the Creator. The sinner prefers to believe Satan's lie that we evolved than to believe that God created us. They would rather believe that somehow by you and I doing something we can save our planet rather than believing in God who says that this planet one day will be burned up and he'll create a new heaven and a new earth. They'd rather believe the lie of Satan than believe the truth of God, yet they want peace and reject the Prince of Peace. Beloved, that you ought to make you and I weep. You and I are with the Savior to weep tears of love and compassion for the sinner, just like Christ sat outside Jerusalem and wept over his city because his city rejected the Prince of Peace you and I ought to weep over the lost in our world today. It ought to make you and I cry when we see the way mankind is rejecting their God. For God's way is peace through Jesus Christ. God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. And I wonder, do we have a deep love for the sinner? And I say we, because that's me too. Do we? Do we have a genuine love for the sinner like we ought to have? 
Or have we lost the sense of urgency that motivated men of old? It's only when we have a deep love and a deep sense of urgency to see souls saved that God can use us to be a blessing to the unsaved and give you and I the opportunity of sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with them so that they might indeed have the opportunity to be saved. Tell me to 2 Timothy chapter 1, please. 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'm starting to read in verse 8. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor be his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, whereunto I am pointing a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For with the which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day, hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me, in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus, that good thing which was committed unto thee by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. You know we are not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord? And you and I are to keep that testimony pure and we are to preach the gospel so the souls might be saved because they need to know the peace that God offers them. The way of peace is not known to them. They don't know the Prince of Peace. They don't know the joy there is to know him. They don't know what we experience. They don't know the peace that God gives us within our hearts. They don't know the confidence with which we live. They don't know the joy of knowing there's a heaven awaiting us. They don't know the joy of looking around us and realizing these are the end days and Jesus is coming again. They don't know any of that. And we need to make it known. Souls might be saved and no true peace. Then, lastly, note the sin affects man's eyes. In verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul here quotes Psalms 36 and verse 1. And you need to read the whole of Psalm 36. I'm not going to tonight. You need to read the whole of Psalm 36 when you get home to get the full picture of what he's talking about here in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But the point is the ignorance of verse 17, the way of peace they have not known, is caused by the pride of verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. You see, they don't fear the Lord. Because the unsaved world has no fear of Almighty God, therefore they do not know the way of peace. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 says, uh, says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. We read elsewhere that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
You see, if people are going to know the way of peace, then they've got to know God. And the only way they'll know God is if they have a fear of God. Unless mankind has a fear of God, mankind will not know peace. Men today, as in the past, there's no fear of God. Because if they did, they would be saved. You see, the reality is for you and I, the reason why we get saved is because we realized who God was. We realized that God was all-powerful, almighty, and that our destiny was a Christless eternity. That's what got me saved. That's how come I came to know the Savior. And I've told you my testimony before, but that's how I knew the Savior. I mean, I went to Sunday school forever, as long as I can remember. As a child, I always went to Sunday school. I always went along and, uh, with my mum and dad. And then when I was a little bit older, I would go with my grandmother. We'd go, I'd go to Sunday school Sunday morning, go to church Sunday morning. Then Sunday afternoon, we'd go with my grandmother to her Sunday school. And then Sunday night, we'd go to their church. It was a bizarre scenario, I know, but that's what we did. And I knew the Bible stories. I knew about Daniel. I knew about David. I knew about uh, uh, David and Goliath. I knew about uh, all the New Testament stories, but I didn't know Christ. And it wasn't until I was at a camp and the preaching was about the second coming of Christ and I realized that I could get left behind because I'd never dealt with my relationship to God, I came to realize that there was a holy God whose glory I fell short of that brought me to the place at the age of 10 whereby I realized I needed the Savior. I needed the fear of God. For the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And if we don't fear God, people can't get saved. And that's the problem with the social gospel. That's the problem with easy believism. What people need today is they need a fear of God. And there is nothing within man that would cause man to turn to God. They have to understand who God is. But that's why God has chosen the foolishness of preaching. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 21. 1 Corinthians 1, 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew God. It pleased God by the foolishness, knew not God, sorry. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. God chose preaching of the gospel, the foolishness of that very thing, to be the means by which man would get saved. Because as you and I preach righteousness, and you and I preach the holiness of God, and men begin to fear God, then men will get saved. You know, Jonathan Edwards was a, a unique preacher of yesteryear. It's said of Jonathan Edwards that he, would, he preached a famous sermon once called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's said that he had a piece of paper, he held it six inches from his nose, and he read the sermon in a monotone voice. By the time he'd finished preaching, people were hanging onto the pillars in the auditorium for fear they were going to slip into hell as he proclaimed the glory and majesty of God 
and what was the consequence of rejecting him. And on that night, hundreds of people got saved. Why? Because the fear of God is the beginning of knowledge. On that night, those people realized that before a holy God, they were hell-bound sinners. And because of that, they were saved. Oh, the people would get a fear of God today. Well, that would make all the difference. There's just two more verses to go in this section, which we're going to look at next time, verse 9 and 20. We don't have time tonight. But you know, as I was bringing this to a close, and I was trying to think about how to bring this to a conclusion tonight, I just thought maybe I should ask this question. Do you know the Saviour? Do you know for sure you're saved? Have you come to the place where you've recognized before a holy God that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? Because if you don't, then you've missed the Prince of Peace. And if you're not saved tonight, then you stand condemned before a holy God. The picture painted in Romans chapter 3 is the picture of you. And if you don't know the Savior, then you're missing out on a blessing and joy that salvation brings. Those of us who are saved, I trust this will motivate us to seek every day by God's power opportunities to tell people about our God and our Savior. Gracious Father, we thank you this night for your word. We thank you for Romans chapter 3. And Lord, we thank you for the vivid description of the condition of man. And it's not a pretty picture. But Lord, may it stir our hearts to realize the urgency, the necessity to help people understand there is a God in heaven who ought to be feared and a saviour who ought to be accepted that they might know the way of peace. Lord, just pray that you commend your word to our hearts tonight. If there's anybody here tonight who doesn't know you, I pray that, Lord, they might trust you before it's eternally too late. Bless now as we close with this hymn, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe it's 241 as we close. 241. Two hundred forty-one. Have you any room for Jesus? Let's stand and sing first and last. <laughs>